Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. If you are not familiar with the name Dan Wilson, you are certainly familiar with the voice or and or familiar with his pen. Uh, Dan initially came to fame as a member of the band Trip Shakespeare, uh, later becoming a member of Semisonic, who had a gigantic hit at the end of the 90s with Closing Time, which you still hear somewhere in, in a bar closing, a baseball game ending, you hear all over the place. Uh, Dan is not just a one-trick pony. Uh, over the last two decades, Dan has become very much in demand as a collaborator uh, in the songwriting space. Uh, he's worked alongside the Chicks. He's worked with Taylor Swift. He's worked with Adele, John Legend, Chris Stapleton, My Morning Jacket. A good chunk of my record collection has songs that are co-written by Dan Wilson. And uh, we talk about uh, his his propensity for co- collaboration and how uh, and the fact that he's so good at collaborating with people and where that comes from. We talk about his growing up in Minnesota and his Harvard education and kind of how that led to his career as a musician. Uh, we talk about communication and, and uh, community, which are things that I am super big on. Uh, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that. And which also form a lot of the subject matter on his latest EP, which is entitled Dancing on the Moon. It is out now. You should check it out. So without further ado, everybody, please welcome Dan Wilson to the show. Okay, so I'm the worst elevator pitcher in the world. I'm Dan Wilson. Originally, I was born in Minneapolis and grew up in the city there. My parents were really into the arts. It was a really artistically kind of positive time in Minneapolis. And so my brother and I and my sister were all basically formed into artists by parents' encouragement and the town itself. Now I'm a a singer-songwriter. I write songs and produce records for other artists. And I I'm continuing a 30-some year stretch of making my own records and also recording with my long-standingest band, Demisonic. Indeed. So many questions. I guess the first thing is you are a multidisciplinary artist. You write songs, you play, you sing, you also draw, you do calligraphy, which is beautiful and definitely a lost art, I think, in 2022. What came first? Well, when we were kids, my dad was a resident at the University of Minnesota, and my mom had been a nurse at the University of Minnesota, and she stopped working for about seven years or eight years to rear the three of us. And then 
during that time, my parents felt like there just wasn't any extra money for toys. So a lot of our efforts went into this very funny, in the end, great project of making toys for ourselves. So it was very like Santa's workshop at my <laughs> house. My mother would, she worked at the hospital and she would, I hate to say it, but she would steal scissors from the operating rooms and she'd bring back overexposed x-rays and various things, all this cool stuff from the hospital. And then we would use the overexposed x-rays as windshields for cars made of shoeboxes and things like that. And they made really great shaded windshields. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we did a lot of that. It was kind of an artsy craftsy thing, but it was like every time we demanded some toy, my mom would say, there must be some way you can make one of those. And then we'd get out the saws and the chisels and dangerously sharp tools <laughs> that my grandfather left at our house. And we would make something. My brother and I tried to make Various, like we tried to make an air hockey <laughs> table, but failed. We tried a lot of things that didn't work. And also when my brother and I were 13 and 11, I think, and we had been taking piano lessons since each of us was in second grade, my parents bought me and Matt a guitar and we learned how to be the Beatles from that. Nice. I was going to ask what your entry point to music was and i assumed it was the beatles i didn't want to be presumptuous but it yeah. kind of added up my entry point was singing of course i guess along to the radio and also not to the radio like uh, when we lived in north carolina when i was little i remember driving around with our mom and singing all these songs that I think in the end turned out to be ukulele standards like show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. All these folk standards, Southern things. And we would sing all these and kind of gospely things that my mom was not religious, but somehow she knew all these from her youth. Oh, wow. All these kind of gospel songs. So anyway, we would sing in the, in the car and then we kind of graduated to listening to our parents' eight or 10 LP records. And then I started taking piano lesson and Bach and Mozart. And then finally, when my mom bought us, no, a friend of ours bought us, my brother and I, a chord and simple piano book of maybe 10 Beatles songs. It was pre-internet, pre-information. The lore was minimal. So we learned those 10 or 12 super simplified Beatles songs. And that was kind of the basis for... <laughs> For the next however the many years. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> and through Trip Shakespeare to Semisonic to your solo work to songwriting yeah. and producing, you've been at this for a long time and you've managed yeah. to make a life, a career out of it. Was that always the intention? Because you graduated from Harvard. Was it always the intention to be a musician or was it just a career option that you maybe fell into or was it one of many? I had a couple of different kind of paths in my mind, but they were very related. I, when I went to Harvard, I was already dead set on being a musician. And I had told my parents, I think I'm not going to go to Harvard. I think I'm going to join. There was this kind of like, this, I can't tell if it was like a young Christian conservative evangelical thing, but I didn't know anything about that stuff. I just knew that there was a singing group called Up With People that would travel around the country, probably selling magazine subscriptions or <laughs> some weird like wage indenturement or whatever. But I told my parents I wasn't going to go to Harvard. I was going to join 
up with people, people instead and travel the country. And I didn't even know what up with people really was. And my parents, it was the closest they ever said, fuck no. <laughs> fuck no. You are not over our dead bodies. You're going to do that. <laughs> so that was the last twist. I still knew that I wanted to study music at Harvard. But all the music, Louise Vosgerschen was a great teacher. It was amazing to to take classes from her. She had been piano coach to, I guess, some huge concert pianists and things like that. But the other people there were, they would set up mathematical algorithms and then just generate the music. And so it was like pling, plong, pling on the piano. And with like paper clips in the strings of the piano and pens and pencils and pieces of garbage. And I just didn't understand what that had to do with the Beatles. So <laughs> I bailed I bailed from the music department. But still, you're here and, yeah. and you've made a living for yeah. many years as a result of this music education that you had. And uh, I've done it at a kind of low-key level. Not really an indie level, but you've also never been Michael Jackson. You've never been Stone Temple Pilots or Pearl Jam right. or... Justin Bieber. I think for some musicians or for some people getting into music, the lure is not the music. The lure is the fame and the money. And how have you been able to kind of been cool with this career for 30, 40 something years without ever having been this huge, gigantic number one artist? Although behind the scenes, you've certainly been part of a lot of yeah. huge records. Yeah. It's hard for me to maybe totally be honest about the past. When I was 11, 12, I really did imagine that I was going to be Elton John. But I never had seen Elton John. There was no YouTube back then or anything. So I'd never seen him perform. I never knew what it meant for him to be in front of screaming fans. I knew how he dressed. I thought it was awesome. One of my arts and crafts things was I, a friend of mine and I and my brother made puppets and put on puppet shows around our neighborhood <laughs> and at the school. And we made a whole Elton John band with each guy like lovingly in, and interpreted with upholstery foam and uh, felt and yarn. And these were hilariously kinetic puppets that would really do the wild ass shit that we sort of assumed that the rock stars were doing. But I didn't have any example of what it was like to to be Elton John. And I think what I assumed is I would always be able to be to play the piano. That's what I pictured Elton John always doing. Right. I didn't think there were other components to it. And when I got a little more savvy and started having bands, I started to realize that I was usually the best front person to sing my songs especially when I wasn't in a band with my brother, Matt, who does have this magnetic stage presence that, that I don't really have. I feel like I'm a little bit like Neil Finn, a really a good performer who nails the songs and puts out lots of spirit. But you have to notice that the spirit is happening because nothing on the stage is of that much interest and nothing in the private life is interesting at all. So I kind of figured out I, I, I had to have someone sing my songs. Might as well be me. I would make a half-decent front person for a band. But I also never had that thirst to be beloved by millions. And I very quickly learned that the press sucks and they misquote you at will to find a more embarrassing thing that you didn't say. 
but to say that you said it. And I've quickly learned that that whole angle is mostly either neutral or sort of embarrassing exploitation of the artists. And I, I quickly learned that I wasn't really that cut out to make it to all the great parties and say something obnoxious every time I had a chance. So that's why I seem like I'm very low key because I'm just not that guy. It just doesn't I, come naturally to me. And it has I, to. I get it. I get it. You are well known for being a collaborator, whether it's as a member of a band or again with your songwriting. I, I feel like you have to sort of merge personalities or at least have a good chemistry with the people that you're working with. And you've worked with a lot of people. So is there something about you that lends itself to being a good collaborator? Are you a good mediator? I don't know, because I've changed as a human being. So I don't know if the things that make me good now as a collaborator, or even 10 years ago, were the things that made me a good band member. Or I, I, When I grew up, I thought I was going to be the Beatles, and then I thought I was going to be Elton John. And then I thought I was going to be Jaco Pastorius. And so I got a bass and I took out the frets. I got a jazz bass from 1971 and I took out the frets and had a guy resurface the neck. And I learned how to play the fretless bass and I learned how to be the bassist in a jazz band. And I always thought, not always, I shouldn't say always. I thought for like four or five years pretty consistently that that was the coolest possible route for a musician to sound like Jaco Pastorius, but play the bass, which is a very interestingly kind of supportive, you're a sideshow at best. You're not the star. Yeah. I mean, how many bassists outside of Michelle and Deggio Cello are, are front people? It's rare. McCartney is a good one. Right. Sting is a good one. Amy Mann, Michelle. Yeah. You can name them. So. Yeah. But even my thought that, okay, bass is just the dopest thing to play. That's like a band member mentality. It's like, I'm going to get in there with the drummer and we're going to make a great groove. It's going to be amazing. That's not like, I'm going to make the people say my name. So that maybe makes me just generally a more collaborative musician. A couple things happened. Trip Shakespeare was, we were very contentious, my, my first pretty successful band. And that was with my brother, Matt and Elaine Harris, and John Munson, who is also in Semisonic. And Shakespeare was very contentious, and we were all very opinionated. And we liked democracy only because it allowed us all to have a wedge into the d discussion of... <laughs> we didn't really like... None of us really liked democracy. We just liked democracy because otherwise someone would have been in charge and it wasn't going to be all of us. It allowed us all to have opinions. But we developed a whole bunch of methodologies like you can't mentally try out an idea and determine whether it's good. Someone can't go, why don't we try that last half of the song at half speed? And you can't go, well, I'm listening to it in my mind and you suck. That <laughs> idea. You can't do that. We had a rule. You had to like go to the trouble of doing that. And so every once in a while, someone would say something like that and the other three would be like, oh, this sucks. And then we would try it. And it would be like transformatively great. It would be insane. So Trip Shakespeare had this whole methodology of of being collaborative within the understanding that Matt was the aesthetic engine of the band. 
and he ought to have more say. At the same time, we had a lot of rules that I have learned are the classics. Like that thing of you have to try it. You have to try it. You can't just think it in your mind and say, no, that's bad. I've heard that from really brilliant people subsequently as like one of the main operating principles. So that set of rules was really useful in my later collaborations. I I had success as an artist and it was fun. And I like the idea of helping other people have that same thing happen to them. My daughter Coco was born very, very premature and has suffered from medical complications her whole life. And it's been a real, often very difficult roller coaster of a life with her. But one of the things about her is that she's not nonverbal. She understands incoming information. But the outgoing expression runs at one twentieth speed mm. at best. So the amount of standing and waiting quietly and motionlessly with Coco waiting for the sentence to come out is has transformed our family. Like all of us are capable of waiting an incredible amount of time for someone to say what they're trying to say. And none of us try to suggest because that would derail the process and Coco would have to start again. All over again, right. And then you got another 30 seconds or 45 seconds of waiting for a simple sentence to come out. So we all have this habit of like, someone's about to say something and they seem to be having difficulty saying it. And my younger daughter and my wife and I and our immediate relatives all can like, what is it called? Suspended animation. We can go into kind of a pause mode and just wait calmly while Coco brings the sentence from the depths. And that turns out to be a great thing to be able to do in a session with someone is because sometimes the better the idea, the harder it is to dredge it up or when someone's not being glib, when they're really trying, sometimes you have to shut up and be still and let them find the thought, whatever it might be. Right, right. So Coco really, really gave me that kind of strange superpower, I guess. That's an awesome superpower to have. I yeah. I think maybe part of it is as a New Yorker, uh, I'm always waiting for the next thought, waiting for the next word said, the next sentence, whatever. Yeah. And that lends itself to stepping on thoughts and stepping on words a lot of times. Yeah, it's natural. And to have that ability to wait and let somebody get their full thought out in a world. I mean, I, I'm not going to say in a world, but at least in my world, that's not necessarily supported or encouraged. It could but be I, awkward. It could be weird. Actually, I've read these articles about it because I'm kind of interested in it. And the stepping is a kind of camaraderie. It's a signal. Even though you're listening to the last thing they're saying, the stepping is almost like an interlocking of what you're saying with their, it's not purely ego dominating. It's actually kind of a way of relating and it's a signal. So if someone waits till you're completely dead stopped done, it can be actually awkward and weird. 
It it does like, feel <laughs> awkward and weird sometimes. I think it also for some people kind of jumps into a situation where then they feel that you're just talking to fill in space. Right. So, right. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. I got to give people a little bit more time to speak, I think, going forward. <laughs> maybe the third or fourth thing about collaboration is I'm I'm super into musicians. Like when Trip Shakespeare first went on tour and we met all the musicians all around the country. And then Semisonic did it on a larger scale. And also we would play festivals with artists of all these different styles of music. And one of the things I learned from that was that the musicians had more in common than the stylistic differences. And they almost had more in common than the state they were from or how they were brought up or whatever their backgrounds. There was Anyway, there was a strong magnetic commonality to being a musician that doesn't transcend all things, but it's profound when you're in it. And that was a confirmation that I just really love musicians. I just want to be with them all the time. And so it makes me a good collaborator because I just love being with them. <laughs> I'm just super into it. That's that's an interesting concept. I Knowing more than my share of musicians, I feel like the further you go up the ladder or the, the more rarefied the air gets, maybe the less potentially collaborative or the more mm. hoops you have to jump through, that kind of mm. thing. I, you'd know that better than I would. But I do think there's still a common language, even as someone who loves music, there's a common language that sort of transcends geography and ethnicity and even age in some cases. Yeah. One of the revelations for me over time, when I was in my teens, I was imagining being in a band with Wayne Shorter and Joe Zawinul. And I had a friend who played in a reggae band in Minneapolis. And through him, I got turned on to the Rolling Stones collaboration with Peter Tosh. Peter like Tosh, yeah. The kind of inter-collaborative stylistic thing that was going on in music then was very interesting to me. But I think when hip-hop kind of took over, there was an interesting subcurrent of that, which is that hip-hop artists, especially the people who produce records, are so omnivorous. Like they're they're gonna sample Mozart and then Liberace and then some like flamenco. The whole thing of hip hop is that it's it's pan stylistic. It's the kitchen sink and it's, and it's sourcing, and yeah. and it all kind of flows back through the styles or the vibes of the person who's making that record. But it's almost one of the rules that. The farther afield you go, the cooler it is in a weird way. I'm not sure which. In a big, giant bubble, that's the way music musicians' personalities work. Like right. the folkiest, kind of emo, sad person is is totally aware of Norwegian death metal. <laughs> They're all, everybody in music, and actually the better the people are, the more kind of weirdly omnivorous they are. So right. anyway, that's sort of my ideal in music. It's more like I like musicians than I like any particular kind of music. Interesting. Now, jumping forward, because you have yeah. a record coming out. Yeah. And from what I read, it, it really seems inspired by things like 
relationships and communication and yeah. stuff that we collectively, that we as people, that we as Americans, that we as American men often don't discuss or prioritize with any kind of gravity or meaning. What what was the impetus behind deciding to center your record around these themes? I think I'm thinking about under the circumstances and dancing on the moon in particular, I feel like the past three years, even the past seven, eight years, a lot of us have less and less been able to comfort ourselves with the outside world. A lot, because the rap about the outside world th from the press and everything else is relentlessly negative and terrifying, or maybe the outside world has been pretty pretty difficult lately, and obviously the pandemic is the outside world. So with the outside world, when living in California and all summer long, and you smell the smoke of some forest burning down, right. it's this intense sense of being under siege. And I... It doesn't really sound or f vibe with me. It doesn't sound good when I do it, and it doesn't really vibe with me to talk about how the world is under siege and everything is going to collapse and it's a disaster. And I don't necessarily think that that's exactly the reality that we're living in. I don't think we are in a nonstop disaster. But what it did to my family the past like several years is it really compacted us together. It really made us spend a lot more time together. It really made my wife and I and our loved ones and our small inner circles tighter. And we were sort of getting the consolation from each other and trying to live in that sort of tightness. And, and that's why under the circumstances, I feel like is kind of emblematic for the EP because it's about like having conflict with somebody or being in a kerfuffle with somebody. But like the second verse is all about an ant war on the sidewalk that gets run over by a baby carriage. It's like the ants are all like, fuck you, we're going to kill you. And then they all get yeah. killed by a baby carriage rolling over. And to me, it's like, yeah, under the circumstances, we better make peace with each other and find that closeness and that tightness and really be supportive of each other. And Dancing on the Moon is very much like that. It's about two people who are essentially marooned in the culture trying to love each other. And I feel like that feels more emblematic to me of maybe ever since Trump's election and the Women's March and the protests in Minneapolis, my hometown, which was such a shit show and such an obvious revelation of how covert or un unacknowledged American racism is. It was all that stuff. I didn't end up writing songs about how terrible things were. I just wrote songs about how we got to hang in there together and try to stay connected to each other. I think that's really important. There's probably no articulate way for to say this, but I think that our survival as as a race, as humans, yeah. comes from depending on one another, comes right. from relying on one another, supporting one another, and criticizing mm. one another when necessary, but also being able to accept that criticism in a way that's not like, well, fuck you then. Totally. And the concept of family is, I mean, there's obviously the dictionary definition of family, which most people take to mean they're relatives by blood, but I'm also a big believer in chosen family, found family. I really love that phrase. I get yeah. it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, you must have collected this huge 
chosen family, this huge found family over yeah. the years. How do the people around you keep you grounded? How do you lean on folks when you need to lean on folks? I love that phrase chosen family and I really get it. And my own nuclear original family is still very close and we're we're all pretty complicated and everybody's an artist and nobody's completely sane. <laughs> but we are very we're there for each other and we make our best effort at putting in the effort. And I feel like the chosen family part is really interesting because if I had my way, like pre-pandemic, we would have really big parties at our houses, wherever we would live. And yet they weren't like, well, everybody in LA hears about it and shows up. It would be like, I think we need to introduce so-and-so to so-and-so. Or I really think these two would really get along. Or wouldn't it be cool if your sort of festival psychedelic friends hung out with my muso jazz drummer friends? Wouldn't that be perfect? That kind of thing. And that's been challenged the past couple of years because you just can't throw big, huge parties right now. It's just too awkward for people. And maybe it's not even safe. But I think that's around the bend. I feel like maybe I bit off more than a human being could chew in what I consider my chosen family because it's more like my musical community. I have a whole subset of the musical community that has chosen me and I chose them. I wonder about that biting off more than you can choose statement because I think there are people, I think I'm one of these those people who, like I want to love everybody, man. And I want to have parties where I, I mean, granted, can't really do that in a Brooklyn apartment, even before COVID, where all of my friends get together and they get to know each other and they become friends. And it's kind of like a big community. And sometimes I wonder, well, do I really have the time and the energy to devote to all of these cool people and make them all feel prioritized and needed and wanted and welcome? It's funny. I joke with Jake about this a lot. He called me equal parts philanthropist and misanthrope. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I bet you that combo has happened in the past. I think that's probably almost like a magic combo. That's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we need each other to to move forward, and uh, oh, yeah. I think we need to rely on one another a little bit more than we do. Because you talked about the press at the beginning, and you can extrapolate that now into social media. And I, I think yeah. everything is so geared towards divisiveness. Yeah, even among people who really think similarly. I mean, you think about yes. people who consider themselves politically liberal and these fine points become so pronounced and it's like, why are we arguing? We agree on 80% of, of yeah. things that we are passionate about. As someone who was a musician prior to the internet and social media and streaming and all that stuff. Do you think that the changes that have happened, particularly in the last like 15, 20 years, uh, do you think that they've been good changes, bad changes? Are you indifferent? Is it a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B? In some ways, I think it's like an absolutely amazing time just to be, I mean, thinking purely about music, an amazing time to be a musician. Like the... First time, this is probably 25 years ago or 20 years ago, we learned about, I think it was that song, That's What Friends Are For by Stevie Wonder. 
Oh, with Dion Warwick and yes. so on? Yes, I think they had had the tapes shipped around the world by airplane and had the different people sing on the thing or whatever. And then the first time we heard that, that had been done over phone lines with, with data, we were all so blown away. And now we're in a world where you can work concurrently with somebody 10,000 miles away with a little delay. You can't jam in real time exactly, but you can work concurrently with them on something and then they can record a nice version of the, of the thing also concurrently with a with a rig there where they are. And it's on your desktop because of file sharing systems, right? So it's just sitting there. And that is now the natural, like, there's this person in San Francisco, they made a sample. And there's a producer in L.A., they took it and put a beat on it. And they know... They're working on a record of a certain artist who could even have done the vocals somewhere else in New York. But that's almost the the model now. That sort of, that's what friends are for, weird notion is now the norm. But the illusion this creates for everybody, and it actually is a deeper illusion than this, but it gives everyone the illusion that you can make music without hugging somebody or any kind of handshake or dapping or anything is nothing. You can do it without the physical space of the body. Right. And I think that's a very, very tricky and risky illusion. And I think similarly, young artists are all over the world, like in their bedrooms. It's all cool. They're making records on their laptop. But everything about the music business and the gear business and the supply chain business of music is about training you to buy everything to put it in your bedroom. Because if there's 20 people within a mile of you and you could all share something in one person's bedroom, or you could all be given the illusion that you need to have it all in your bedroom, that's 20 times more sales for the people mm-hmm. who sell the shit. So they want you to think, oh, I need everything on my desk in my bedroom. All alone, I'll be making hit records. And yeah, it does work for some people, like one out of... 100,000 people. It totally works. But the other almost 100,000 people all bought all the shit. It's not like it's a fortune, but it's all just a little bit of consumerism. You have a little interface for your laptop. You got a laptop and you save up and you buy a $200 microphone if you can. And it's like, okay, that's affordable. But it's also very, very profitable if everybody in the neighborhood is convinced they need to spend $150 on a microphone as opposed to just, I have a friend who has a microphone. Right. Which is what it used to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not people getting together in somebody's garage nope. or somebody setting up a turntable in a park and yeah. people walking by and getting on the mic. It's a right. different ball game. And I compare it to, <laughs> it's like phone sex versus actual sex. Like Ooh, that's dark. Yes. I yeah. Agree. It is. might be satisfying, but not <laughs> as satisfying. What I'm saying? And so, long term. As a practice, as a human practice, it's possibly like doom. Right. To go entirely to phone sex instead of real sex, to go entirely to you're alone in your bedroom making the whole thing on your own from we're hashing it out together and making up our rules and figuring out how to be respectful and how to listen to someone else's idea and how to hear something like, wait, I thought that would suck, but that's amazing. Wow. Right. Yep. Yep, I agree. I'm, I'm going to rapid fire you a couple of questions now, just because okay, I have right. a million in my head. What is the most Minneapolis thing about Dan Wilson? Oh, my, the relentless humility. 
I mean, I guess Minnesota nice is a real thing. It's not real, but it's real. It's not real, but we do it. We do it relentlessly. It's an unshakable facade of humility. It just can't stop. And how does that translate into L.A. life? It's funny because the thing people in L.A. fear the most is conflict. So if they don't like something that you sent them, they may never speak to you again in your whole life. So it's passive-aggressive. Yeah, super passive-aggressive. But if you seem so chill... And so kind that you can take a no without being mad, then people from L.A. can handle you. Interesting. That's good to know. You are the only man in your house. I am. (laughs) Was there an adjustment period? Did you need to kind of settle with that or did you just roll with it? Well, no. First, it was me and Diane, my wife. And then it actually just evolved from there to more and more females. So like, <laughs> yeah, I'm the only man. And what have you taught your daughters or have you felt that you've needed to teach your daughters about masculinity or men in general from your perspective? It's funny because I feel like I'm very collaborative and I'm a good listener. Some of the pitfalls of difficult masculinity, I might be able to work around them a little bit better with my girls and my wife. I think, I don't know if I have really strongly differentiated views of what a person ought to be if they're a man or a woman, but I feel like I want to give my kids a sense that I will do everything I can to protect them and that I value their point of view and we're going to get through this and I feel like I want to be like a source of calm, stability, and I guess you'd say strength. So maybe that's a masculine vision, I suppose. But not strength as in Schwarzenegger strength. No, no. no. Put it this way. For some reason, my parents, especially my mom, had a lot of red flags that she would point to when masculinity was getting out of hand or being oppressive. And I'm not talking about my dad, really, but my mom was just very aware of it. And we'd talk about it. She might've helped me. And also because I was non-athletic, yielding, forgetful, spacey, poor executive function in school, not bossy, (laughs) periodically bullied, I had a firsthand kind of relationship with the worst aspects of masculinity. So Mm. I've kind of had like, okay, I'm going to avoid that if I possibly can. Right on. So if a song can be about anything, Mm. (laughs) what is the most bizarre thing you've felt compelled to write a song about? Well, I think my song, the one called A Song Can Be About Anything is so meta because it's about a song can be about anything, but then it turns out to be about the same thing that all the other songs are about (laughs) in the end. But even the idea that the song can be about the song being about anything is just nuts. It's too meta. It's great. So that might be the weirdest thing I've written a song about. But also I just feel like under the circumstances, the ant war verse just, it happened. And I was like, wow, I'm not, did not know I would write a verse about an ant war on the New York sidewalk, but there it is. <laughs> I think when you say a song can be about anything, it's almost like, I hope so. I mean, 
There's a lot of songs about the same thing, the same silly stuff, the same relationship stuff, breakups and makeups and endless young adult drama. But let's not give ourselves the illusion that that is what music is. That's a subset of music, and it's mm -hmm. about a very specific set of 11th grade agonies and joys. It's fine, but it's not the whole thing. That is absolutely true. In that sort of same space... Yeah, And you're a songwriter, so you would know if songwriting is different from writing poetry, from journaling. I think a lot of people, whether they're doing any of those things, have real issues getting to that first step, putting pen to paper or putting their finger on the keyboard or whatever it is. Yeah. And you have done stuff on Instagram, like basically songwriting classes. What is the first step to get over the hump? Which I think is probably a mental hump, right? Like it's a, I'm afraid... I don't know how, or I don't think I know how to get over that hump and break the seal of putting pen yeah. to paper and writing about something you want to write about. I mean, a lot of it is like, that's easy for you to say. A lot of my answers about anything related to this is like, yeah, well, you get songwriter. It's easy for you to say. So that said, let's just get that out of the way. Think how it feels to write a song, whether it's bad or good, is the first step. So doing whatever is necessary to set aside the question of does this suck or not is the first step it doesn't matter maybe you ought to meditate for a couple of years so that your ego is not so invested in everything you do but if you don't have that kind of time maybe the idea is like i'm now gonna write my fourth really bad song here we go and the way i'm gonna write my fourth really bad song is i'm gonna write down a list of the things that really annoyed me in the past week. <laughs> and then I'm going to just sing them as close of a melody as I can find that they all fit and remove a few words if necessary. Just get them into a little structure. Now it's like five things that annoyed me to a melody whose quality doesn't matter. And the last thing that annoyed me is the chorus of the song, and I say it four times. And now I just finished my fourth bad song, and now I know what it feels like to write my fourth song. And it's about getting that feeling of making something purely out of words and notes. I think people are too too aware of the good things that can happen if only you're a crazy-ass genius. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's what I think. And I think for me, I have a big advantage in all this because obviously I've been doing it for a long time. I've written a lot of songs that have done really, really well. My melodies are in people's minds and the subconscious. So that actually makes my new songs somehow a little more familiar and a little bit better sounding. Mm -hmm. because they sound like a thing I heard in the past, but that's actually one of my old songs. There's this strange kind of like... I've got a toehold. But prior to that, I just would have this thing like, I learned a new chord and I'm going to write a song using this new chord. And, and I would always think it was just the greatest thing ever. Like I always think, oh, this is a, what an amazing song. I'd write this song and I'd be like, yes, I did it. So good. And then I'd have to revisit it two weeks later and be like, oh, <laughs> it wasn't really that good. But that feeling of, I'm doing it, I'm making one, that was the illusion I needed to get to the end. So maybe someone else needs a different illusion. Maybe someone else needs the illusion, this doesn't matter. 
No one cares if you write a good song. No one's going to be hurt if it's bad. Right. And it's all subjective, right? Good, bad, to whom? Yeah. 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 And we're our own worst critics. Amen to Anybody that. in your life who's worse of a critic t- to you than you are has got to go. Yeah. Yeah. Got to get them the hell out of there. Uh, don't show them any more songs. Seriously. All right. So one more question for you. This, it's 20,000. It's 20,000. It's 2022. It's 2022. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On a personal level, what do you mm-hmm. think is the biggest difference between 1992 Dan Wilson and 2022 Dan Wilson? Wow. 92 Dan Wilson. If I had to choose the thing that I imagine makes me easier to deal with, I guess, is that I'm so much less bossy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so much less. <laughs> and I guess that, that goes back to the humility thing, right? Well, no. I was still a Minnesotan when I was really bossy, so I don't know how that worked out. <laughs> I was really bossy. <laughs> I was going to drag everybody along on my agenda, kicking and screaming. That's how I was. And I'm not some like... People, some people need that, though. I, I, think, I think some people get dragged along for the ride, and they're like, well, shit, I'm glad I did that. Yeah, it was, it was worthwhile. <laughs> so it just means that you had confidence in yourself, in your mission. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I did. I feel like did. Not a bad thing, Dan. <laughs> so first of all, I got to say thank you to Dan for taking time out of his schedule to sit down and talk. Uh, I I really enjoyed this conversation, enjoyed getting to know him a little better. Uh, You can find Dan Wilson online at danwilsonmusic.com. He is on Twitter and Instagram at danwilsonmusic. Uh, He even has a Tumblr. I'm looking at his website right now, and if you click on the little Tumblr thing, uh, you can go to danwilsonsketchbook.tumblr.com, and you can look at some of his artwork along with some of his uh, personal musings. Dancing on the Moon, the EP, is out now. It is available on every digital service provider you can think of. And, of course, there is plenty of other Dan Wilson music, whether it's solo with Trip Shakespeare, with Semisonic, or one of the three million songs he has uh, co-written that you can find. Uh, Check out all of his discography. I highly recommend. And uh, once again, thank you, Dan, for being on the show. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, Follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash detoxicity pod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh 
doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time, peace. <laughs>